0: going live right now.
1: Okay. Hey everybody, we're live in the back room. It's the green room for Disrupt TV. And we're talking about the full employment recession and what the NASDAQ's doing. Just kidding, actually. We are gonna the quick introductions on the back end and uh, we're gonna do them in reverse order. And our guests are gonna share where they're calling in from and what we're gonna talk about today. So Keith, uh, what are we talking about? And uh, where are you calling in from?
2: I'm calling in from San Francisco, Ray. It's great to be on the program. Very,
1: That's very good. cool. Perry, go ahead.
0: Hi, Perry Hewitt calling in from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Really excited to talk tech with these gentlemen and the impact of data in the social sector in the world.
1: All right. And Roger, go ahead.
3: Hey, Roger Primo. Uh, I'm at IBM and run strategy and M&A there. I'm just t- looking at the implications of technology and how it's moving
1: moving our economy forward. All right, El, back to you for the count.
4: All right. Three you Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. You're going to see Ray on TV just about every day on business and technology news, Bloomberg, um, uh, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG Zero. Welcome Ray Wong to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks, Vala. Um, Vala, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, and executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet, and more importantly, (laughs) talking about this show. So, But who do we have to kick it off today?
4: It's our privilege to have Roger Primo, General Manager, Strategy, Corporate Development and IBM as our first guest. Uh, Roger's team is responsible for shaping the overall IBM strategy, including the company's focus on hybrid cloud, artificial intelligence across all of IBM's business units. The team also leads corporate development, including portfolio management and investment activities. Roger joined IBM in the uh, middle of 2020 from Boston Consulting Group where he was a managing director and partner in the Boston office. My home, Boston. I love we should be breaking bread at some point, Roger. And BCG, Roger, was a global sector leader for, uh, for uh, software and SaaS, serving a range of clients from startups to established software leaders. He was also a leader in Gamma, BCG's artificial intelligence and advanced analytics team. Welcome, Roger, to Disrupt TV.
3: Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, we are
1: really excited to have you here. You before you joined IBM, you are one of the top minds in the software industry. Now you're at IBM. You can see how the inside is done and, of course, putting this out there. Um, one of the big topics have been digital transformation. We've seen the massive acceleration over the last couple of years um, and how people are getting there. Um, and so despite what's going on, we can't tell what kind of economy is. The jobs report was amazing this morning and the volatility in the markets, not so amazing that we worry about the Fed. Um, we're still seeing a strong investment in tech, right? Not enough people. What's going on. I mean, we've got what two jobs for every applicant, three tech jobs for every applicant, and you know, an economy where population is going to start declining after 2030 at 9.2 billion. So what is going on? And what are you seeing that's driving this massive investment still in technology, given the amount of uncertainty?
3: Well, right, I think you you described it, right? I mean, first of all, there's this term digital transformation, which become cliche, but it's that notion of saying, Within a business, how do I use technology to make what I do better and make the work that I do with human beings, the places where they really add value. And so I think right now with worker shortages and all these wage complexities, you see businesses that where we used to talk, think about some of those things as a way to make a business a couple points more efficient. Now it's fundamentally a difference between keeping the lights on in many businesses and them not being able to function. And so we see, you know, to for our sector, we continue to see technology outgrow GDP. Even in a downturn, we expect, you know, technology to continue to be a growth sector. But it's driven by that tailwind you described, which is the continued use of technology to drive that automation. And, and technologies like automation, AI, etc. mean that it's not just kind of prescribing a process, it's really putting intelligence in that. Hmm. So you can have a human-like customer experience with the power of AI. It's not just you know, automating some small back office functions. So we continue to see that to be a long-term trend that we're going to continue to play out, see play out as a lot of these economic conditions, pandemics, et cetera, those are going to continue to evolve. But underneath it all, the technology continues to advance. So if you look at things like foundation models and how those are advanced natural language processing and things like that, Mm -hmm. the tech is moving as fast as the economy here and is continue to increase the scope of business, the technology can help advantage.
4: It is the pace of innovation. Um, you know, as soon as you get excited about Dali turning text to image, you got Meta turning text to video, and then you watch AI Day with Musk and his team and Tesla and the humanoid. And he's walking kind of gingerly, but I remind myself like Google was the 21st search engine to enter the market in 1998. So you don't have to be the first like the Boston Dynamic dancing robot to ultimately own that space. And I wouldn't bet against Tesla. But when you consult with these CEOs as they're seeing this unprecedented pace of innovation with not just AI, but blockchain, immersive technologies, Internet of Things, cloud, social, mobile, all of this amazing uh, portfolio of capabilities, how many of them are thinking about business model innovation? How many of them are thinking about new sources of revenue versus just modernizing their existing infrastructure?
3: Uh, I'd say practically all of them are. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you have to tackle digital transformation with the notion of how does it advance my business and help me create new revenue streams or evolve customer experiences. Mm -hmm. Practically all of our clients have some sort of digital native that has rethought the business model, has rethought the customer experience, and they have to pay attention to it. So it's absolutely top of mind. And for IBM, we just uh, announced an acquisition last week of Dialexa, which is a product engineering company, which is just the, rec- again, part of the tailwind on technology. It's the recognition that IBM is not just in, I- or any of our competitors, not just in IT, technology is pervasive across the business. So it's, it's on the manufacturing shop floor, new connected car experiences, new ways to create digital experiences to convert, you know, real world experiences into digital ones. We're going to continue practically every business leader I talk to is thinking about both. How do I modernize what I do today and make it more digital? But how does it create the opportunity for me to create new, new streams of revenue? And frankly, be the digital leader in my space before that digital native or one of my competitors is.
4: And these technologies are giving birth to new businesses. I mean, at Salesforce, Salesforce Ventures, our corporate venture capital, I mean, we're investing in startups on a cadence of once a week. Do you see this technology also driving uh, new revenues coming from new businesses that may not exist today?
3: Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. So my team, similarly, uh, we got the IBM Ventures team on my team, and so we continue to talk to a uh, um, we focus on the strategic swim lanes of IBM where you know hybrid cloud, AI, automation, security, things that IBM cares about. But absolutely, we just see new domains and new capabilities. And just to, like one that we haven't gotten to, but we're super excited about at IBM is quantum. That's going to unlock. If you think of all the chemistry and biology domains, a quantum computer will provide a better simulation of places where quantum mechanics matters. And you can talk about drugs, you talk about molecular biology, You're going to talk about places where the quantum mechanics actually do matter. So chemicals also. So we just see new human, new capabilities being created by the advance of technology. And so we're going to continue to see new models emerge and, you know, and it puts pressure on those businesses as they think about their digital transformation. As this technology comes, it means digital transformation is never done. They have to keep advancing, advancing and stay up to date.
1: You know, it's a great point, right? I mean, your your point on quantum is huge, right? Material science, drug discovery, weather patterns—like all these things—are like life-changing things we couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. Um, and and transformation is hard, right? I mean, this is this is a big piece organizations trying to do. Uh, one of the things I learned from you was really how important was like strategy half. Half the battle on strategy is figuring what you're not going to do, right? And in this post-pandemic world, right? I mean, this digital transformation that's happening right now—it's—it's—it's crazy. So, what are the major challenges enterprises are are facing amidst that environment while trying to make this type of transformation happen?
3: Um, Well, listen. So we go after some. I'll say a few things. I think at its core, on digital transformation. Um, and you mentioned some in my background at BCG Gamma. I think what they did really well, what we did really well is put bright business people that were fluent on AI analytics in a room with smart data scientists that were fluent enough on business. And we found that common ground mm-hmm. yep. to create something that new. So I think first and foremost, there are a lot of technology teams. There's a lot of business teams. And you, what are the working models and collaboration model? So you actually figure out how we're going to apply that and in what order the business and to your point on what not to do you put some of these technologies into a company, there are a million different ways you could put it to work, but most of those are not the way you should pursue. So that process to really figure out where we collaborate matters a lot. And then our business, you know, we are premised around hybrid cloud, which is just recognition that a lot of what has held back digital innovation in big companies has been the heterogeneity of the, the starting point they're at. So I think, you know, the other trend we're really excited about is just open source technologies. It's what Google gave us with open source and Kubernetes, it's this notion that open source technologies allow us to innovate at scale wherever technology happens to run. And you know, this paradigm shift of open source used to be an inexpensive version of commercial software. Now open source is fundamentally where innovation happens. So when we say to our clients, bet on open source, you're betting on something that has this massive innovation tailwind so that you know you're on something that will continue in advance not at the whims of a particular vendor that may decide that what you bet on isn't a business they're interested in any
4: I, Roger, I just hosted a CIO dinner in Boston uh, beginning of the week, about 20 local um, Boston-based, New Hampshire-based CIOs across multiple sectors from healthcare providers to technology companies, to retail, to manufacturing. Uh, talent was top of mind. We spent a lot of time talking about Re- a- acquiring and keeping talent. Um, so much of culture uh, plays a role in terms of keeping talent. Like if you're not flexible in terms of where you can work and what are the parameters in terms of hours in the day and so on and so forth. Uh, they talk about explosion of data. Uh, they talked about marketing teams having on average 10, 11, 12 data sources they use to formulate a campaign and just, just, just marketing. Uh, so lots of conversations. What advice would you give to technology leaders, chief digital, chief information, chief technology, and maybe even chief experience? Because a lot of these CIOs are now driven by improving stakeholder experience, uh, which was cool to hear. Uh, what advice would you give in terms of priorities to, uh, for, to these group of technology business leaders in terms of executing on a mission and actually delivering positive impact?
3: Um, Well, I just, I put my strategy hat on for a second. I think you want to think about, if you're thinking about the teams that can execute and those skills, I think you want to think really hard about where are the places where you have skill that you want to retain, which are the ones where you want to take that skill and automate it or put it into the software itself. And where's those places that you want to, you know, use a third party. So part of, at IBM, kind of part of IBM's construct and strategy is we have a consulting arm, a systems integration arm, And we believe that having skill to give our customers the, you know, eventually the customer takes that over, but to have the the team that can start taking them down that digital transformation without waiting for that company that may have had an IT team, but not those digital native skills, you need some nucleus of that. But over time, if that becomes, like we were saying, those innovate what the business is, you know, nine times out of 10, you've got to start working on sourcing and building those skills inside the organization because they become your differentiators to the continued evolution of it and deep connection back to what differentiates your business, yeah. the capability you have to build. But I'll say, we, I think every vendor, every company in the world practically struggles with, you've got brilliant AI skills, brilliant digital skills, brilliant design skills, you name it, um, yeah. you're hiring in demand. So you have to create great employee experiences and great connections I think that's increasingly hard in a world where a lot of people interact with work through a a digital screen. So, you know, we do a lot to say, hey, listen, you're going to work digitally, but we try and get together periodically to build those connections. Um, But I don't think anybody's cracked the code on what awesome employee experience and affiliation looks like in a post-COVID world.
4: You came from BCG, which is consistently named best places to work. Every time I see a ranking of culture and great – Morale and, and and ratings, BCG, in my opinion, seems to keep popping at the very top. Can you just shortly, uh, briefly explain? You, you, so you left a great culture. So IBM must have demonstrated to you that they have the similar, you know, ethos and core values as BCG for you to leave.
3: Um, yeah, listen, I I, I I actually think I got maybe a top ten job in tech, so that helped, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've i always, I mean, listen, I've always had a fascination with IBM going back a long time. They're a client of mine at BCG. Yes. And I think they are kind of one of the most interesting companies, if not iconic, of of business history. And so it, for me, it was first and foremost, it was that opportunity to help hopefully lead IBM to this next generation of leadership. And I think back to the strip, you know, we, we declared my predecessors are declaring that strategy. And so I mean, we have a strategy that now that is, is really working. Um, but I'd also say, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a culture inside of IBM. I'd say IBM is so much more deeply technical. So I've really enjoyed yeah. a great culture, but these deep brilliant technical minds that if we can unleash it against that strategy, yeah. you know, there's nothing stopping us. So that was a ton. Awesome. of effort. Yeah. And then uh, frankly, I take a lot of the cultural practices from BCG mm-hmm. and, We've imported a lot of them back into IBM, both in my team and things we do broadly more broadly across awesome. the company. Um, I personally use some of your tools. So I use Slack as my way I communicate with IBM. And we 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 have an open part of PCG was a feedback, open co- communication. So we have like I take questions from all of IBM I love that. our strategy and explain it. So people have given suggestions, comments, questions. We've edited IBM strategy, not the north star, but a little yeah. bit. Of, the map of how we get there from the feedback of people. And then I've also had conversation on Slack that they didn't really, an IBM or sitting in some part of the business, didn't understand their connection back to the business, helping understand how their business both benefit contributed to and benefited from, from the strategy has been part of this kind of cultural spirit of communications we brought back and like not overly average, but Slack is the tool that makes that possible in this distributed world.
4: I love that, I love that. The <laughs> sense of belonging, when someone in your position actually slacks maybe a single contributor in the ecosystem of IBM, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing, sorry, Ray, go ahead.
3: And hey, I'll say, I also have a communications team that's got a great sense of humor. So we call it <laughs> IBM <laughs> and they, uh, they'd ask me if anybody had ever said that but only a million times. <laughs> but, uh,
1: like, that's awesome. <laughs> real quick, real quick. Hey, you know, th- it's really important once you get the culture down and, and then it's really about that sense of purpose. You guys had a couple things that I think you guys are focusing on agility and security, smarter and faster decisions, sustainability as a business driver and innovation for the future. I really want to jump in on the innovation for the future and and sustainability as a business driver. Uh, why why is that so important? Why is that attracting CIOs and even CEOs into that conversation?
3: Um. Well, listen. We uh, we've also invest. Part of our strategy has been acquiring and investing around sustainability. And so mm-hmm. we we're like we're you know a hybrid cloud data and AI company, but that sustainability data is super important, right? And so we bought a company called Invisi that's the leading data platform for understanding. That first, they were a customer. Like IBM looked globally and said how do we, we made our net zero commitments and we said, how do we wrangle our arms around this data mm-hmm. complexity, scope one, two, what you can measure of three. It's hard. It's a tough yeah. data challenge. And so we looked to Invisi for us to do that and later acquired it because we realized it was so important to that data foundation. And yeah, it's, if we're, I mean, I really do wake up in the morning and get super excited about it. Cause we're going to tackle, I mean, the environment is the challenge of our time. And I really sincerely hope that I can be part of making sure that I deliver a better path to sustainability for my children than I, I inherited. I'm not going to blame my parents. They, you know, they, they didn't fully understand. Yet, I'm
4: blaming so, <laughs> uh, mine.
3: Um, <laughs> that date, understand that data so we can actually measure and track and understand yeah. it is the fundamental baseline we need to make progress. And so that's where we, you know, we, we've invested both as a customer and what we do with our clients. And I'd also say, you know, um, it back linking back to digital transformation, it also super, compl- why it's strategic for IBM is True. it's also super complimentary to that digital transformation you got to, because how do I start tackling a lot of my, my climate goals? Actually, it's simplifying, I mean, using AI to figure out a smarter way to do truck rolls or, you know, The same kind of analytics that drove the economic performance of digital transformation also have a positive carbon, you know, a positive impact on reducing the carbon problem. So um, it's been a real big focus for IBM. And frankly, like, it's part of what gets me
4: out of bed every morning. He does have a top 10 job in tech. No question. He does have a top 10 job. (laughs) We're
1: here. You can tell. You can tell. (laughs) We're here with Roger Primo, General Manager, Strategy and Corporate Development at IBM. And uh, thanks for being here. Happy Friday. So,
4: Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Paula. He's having fun, you can tell. But you He's know, having Elijah a lot keeps, of fun. <laughs> and he keeps emphasizing data, data, data. And I think we have the queen of data as our next guest, Perry Hewitt, Chief Marketing Officer at data.org. Uh, Perry works at the intersection of marketing and digital strategy. Perry focuses on bringing modern marketing product practices to mission driven organizations. Currently, Perry's Chief Marketing Officer of data.org, a platform for partnerships building field of data for social impact. Recent engagements include Bloomberg Phil- Philanthropies, uh, R- Rockefeller Foundation, Lincoln Center for Performing Arts. Uh, previously, first time I met Perry was at the Harvard campus. Perry served at Harvard University's chief, first chief digital officer. frankly, the first chief digital officer in all of academia. Uh, At that time, where she was responsible for crafting and leading digital strategy for marketing, communication, engagement for the general public media and alumni. Perry Wright speaks on topics, including digital product management, marketing strategy and women in leadership. Uh, Ray and I have had the privilege of listening to uh, Perry's keynotes. Awesome. You can follow Perry on Twitter, obviously, at Early Adopter at Perry Hewitt, P-E-R-R-Y-H-E-W-I-T-T. Welcome back, Perry, to the Shrub TV.
0: Guys. I tried
4: to get at Vala and I couldn't. That was taken.
0: You guys it so beautifully with that first interview. What an impressive gentleman Roger is. But also, all, all he was talking about for IBM, a global for profit company, are all concerns we share at data.org. So, really yeah. interesting to hear the issues you were discussing. Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's think about the global problems right now, right? I mean, you've been talking about the need for global problem solvers, and you know, the private sector, as we we're looking at the IBM example here. I mean, they're they're running ahead. They're, they're using the data. They're building different things from you know analytics to digital twins to connect soaps. Um, what happens in the social sector where it's less funded? There's less technology enablement, and you know, but but potentially a greater need.
0: Yeah, so, so you know, we issued a report this year called Workforce Wanted on Data Talent for Social Impact, and that was really what we were zeroing in on, right? If Roger is having trouble hiring people, you bet the social sector is struggling. <laughs> <with> less, competitive, <laughs> with Valerie, less competitive. But where we can help him, where I think we have a lot of alignment with the private sector is, I think it came up in your conversation with him that you know it's hard to retain employees, right? Employees want meaning, they want direction, they want connection. So as the needs of the private sector and the social sector intersect more, everybody cares about climate. Everybody cares about financial inclusion and economic empowerment. As these problems affect us all and we become more mutually invested in the solutions, we're finding some concrete ways to partner on those. From a data talent standpoint, we're seeing really innovative models around sabbaticals and secondment. We're seeing just culturally a shift from people saying, oh, I work in the private sector to I work in the social sector to people who can do stints in both, sort of Ambidextrous, you know, uh, operators who can understand the meaning of quarterly returns, but also understand the meaning of social impact. So I think there are lots of ways through these shared problems. We're trying to find shared solutions. When you look at, you know, the new kinds of data emerging, whether well, that's data from space, our colleague David Bray talks about all the time.
1: Yeah. Oh and yeah, right. exactly. Yeah,
0: sensor data coming from our physical world around us. We all have a shared interest in making that data safe, accessible private where it needs to be, and actionable to solve the world's most pressing problems.
4: You know, you, you, um, you've talked about shared interest and in the importance of data. Certainly, when I think of digital transformation, I think of maturity levels in terms of how companies, teams, organizations, individuals use data to improve decision velocity and ultimately deliver impact. But you've also talked about and you've written about a number of natural tensions that will play out in an ecosystem uh, that will shape how we, sectors, different, different organizations use data to solve social impact problems. Can you talk about these natural tensions that exist? And also as a former CMO and CDO, current CMO, former CDO, the balancing act that's needed to bring, you know, like science into marketing and art into marketing and, and how do you create that balance of data and creativity to, to achieve yeah. uh, beautiful outcomes?
0: It's a, it's a tricky web for sure. I mean, the tackling the tensions first, I think yeah. we've we've gone we are 15 years out from move fast and break things, right? We've all realized there's a cost of it. Speed is important and velocity yeah. is important. You're moving in the right direction with that speed all the better. But we have to think about the implications, whether that's private sector data solutions or social sector data solutions. So I think you know we can do hard things, but we have to talk about them first and figure out what that mm-hmm. means. So I think when we think about tensions like in data for good, you think about access versus privacy, I'd like to make all this data about violence against women in Brazil accessible, but I have to think when it gets down to a small level, is this going to in any way be personally identifiable? We have to think about what does it mean to be fast versus what it means to be right. It's one thing if you're putting out an expense reporting app that, you know, a failure might mean a bug and somebody's expenses are delayed a week. How about if you're building an app for vaccine distribution or cold yeah, yeah. where you're trying to keep, you know, vegetables safe for farmers to bring to market? So I think it's thinking about those tensions and a lot comes down to communication, well-articulated data sharing agreements and conversations and community trust, right? And mm-hmm. Whether it's the private sector or the social sector, an element of trust across organizations and across individuals seems to be key. Do you yeah. think,
4: sorry, do you think companies need to have, and like we have Dr. Paula Goldman at Salesforce who's responsible for ethical human use of software design. So we don't build features unless we have her team try to help us developers understand the ethical implications and is this going to be for the betterment of society or not, when we talk about data distribution or clarity in terms of how you communicate, do companies need to, at the very beginning, understand the impact of the solution they're bringing to market and the data that can be produced and shared across different stakeholders?
0: A big win there is interdisciplinarity, right? Bringing together interdisciplinary teams. And you're seeing this, right? You're seeing ethnographers and anthropologists take care of big tech companies. So I think having the right people around the table, and that's the right people in terms of education and background, but it's also in terms of geography. It's pretty dreadful to parachute a solution from San Francisco into Sao Paulo without thinking about the local cultural imperatives and where that solution is going to live. So, for example, we just got $6.8 million from Welcome Uh, helping us build out uh, accelerators to build data talent capacity in India, in Africa. So not only will the right skills be around the table, but the right people be around the table, get different kinds of hands behind the keyboard so that we can make solutions that work for us all.
4: That's great. That's amazing. Congrats on the funding. (laughs)
1: So, hey, we talked a little bit about ESG earlier as well. And uh, these are some of these things that, you know, people are actually using data. And a lot of this is data driven capabilities to get to those ESG um, numbers to understand not just scope one or scope two emissions, but also understand the impact right, in terms of uh, on the governance level, Uh, what are you doing to make it easier for uh, companies to do that? Because we got a myriad of regulations, we got a myriad of standards that are happening, right? It comes back to, you know, how people are going to end up reporting, but you guys have some tools and techniques there to go out and help people.
0: Yeah, what we're really trying to do is get the S back in ESG, you know, environmental, social governance, like, how do you think about what's real, what's vaporware and social impact, right? How do you make it work? Um, so I think the more you can standardize on, you know, I know there's uh, initiatives around the SDGs, for example, which are uh, a good benchmark for many organizations. We aren't where we need to be against the SDGs. I think uh, if either of you were at UNGA in New York a couple of weeks ago, you know, that was a big common consensus. But I think the more we can stick with existing frameworks and measure against them, uh, the better. And I think the more things are created in partnership, too, the more you're thinking working with social sector organizations and government rather than here's SAP's approach, here's Salesforce's approach, here's IBM approach, all smart people doing good work, but the more, we can be like with any software development, right? The more we can get to open standards versus developing our own you know, data principles versus developing our own you know, standards for measuring impact, the better it'll be. Much easier said than done, I appreciate that. Lots of smart people working on hard problems, but I think the more collaborative we can be around standards, the better.
4: Sure, sure. What's the biggest uh, difference transitioning as a super successful CDO to a super successful CMO?
0: So people ask me like, you know, uh, about sort of like my misspent youth, I guess. They say, you know, know, I'm the luckiest person in the world because I've been able to use marketing and technology to tell the story of the world's most Mm. great ideas, the greatest ideas in the world to broad audiences and to really bring them to people who can act on them. So I think sometimes in the CDO role, you're leading with the technology first. An app is the best way to do that. Think about, you know, what does the REST API look like? What are the technological tools to get that information out there might lead? And in a marketing role, you know, you're you're leaning more into the storytelling, but there's no storytelling without technology, whether it's a video or (laughs) a social card or just, you know, a persuasive email. Email is the cockroach of the internet. It will never leave us. (laughs) How cool
4: is it, Ray, to have a CMO talk about, you know, RESTful APIs as we're talking about technology? You've always been an innovator and technologist. I'm going to go back to my question. Because you're a technologist and you're a chief digital officer transitioning to CMO, again, how do you balance this data science and you're wired for analytics and and, 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 and AI and ML and so on and so forth with the creativity part of, of marketing?
0: Not easy, Uh, you know, as (laughs) as Netflix, as they're thinking about, you know, do we cancel shows because the data tells us and where's the role for creativity and ingenuity in those? There are a lot of industries, not only the social sector wrestling with that problem. I think the key is, first of all, it's building trust and also it's being willing to be data informed, right? Mm. I think people go straight for data driven, everything, prescriptive analytics, everything must be automated to like, we can't touch that data. There's a creative creative minds at work. (laughs) Keep your numbers out of here, so I think finding the, the the path in the middle and understanding where it is, but I think a lot is once you've agreed on the the benchmarks of the data, what the problem you are trying to solve, trust the data and then apply the creativity to the end goal you want to reach
4: who's your who's your uh, if you're a batman, who's your robin in terms of line of business owner? as you develop your marketing strategy and campaigns, is it the CIO? Do you, is there a CDO at uh, data.org? Who, who's the, is it the chief revenue because ultimately the language start? of business is finance?
0: What is it? Who's, who's, the, who's the, you know, yeah. how the problems we're trying to solve. We brought on a wonderful chief data and technology officer who's working a lot on our strategy. Uh, we Stewart, uh, who hails from Nigeria, but uh, lived in the Canada and U S most of his life. And I think, the idea of his bringing both his technical ex- expertise and his mm. lived experience you know, has been a wonderful partnership in terms of thinking about how do, we bring these, how do we create these wonderful ideas we're spreading and get them to the people who can take action on them, which include philanthropy, private sector, social sector, partners of all shapes and sizes.
1: No, that's great. That's great. Yeah. No, uh, you know, one of the other things that you guys have done is put a lot of interesting thought leadership uh, in terms of what you guys are putting out there. Anything from the epiverse to AI solutions to where public health is going to, to where software development. How do you bring all that? ideas and stuff together because you're kind of curating a very large community meets the data side, of it dates the activism all in one spot. So data.org to me looks like, you know, you're activating a movement more than anything else. So
0: I think that's exactly the words we want to hear. So I'm thrilled. So we are standing on the shoulders of giants. There are people doing incredible work in technology and data for good for many, many years. Data.org is delighted to play a platform convening and coordinating role. Of those many efforts and bring those people together with you know a fancy four-letter URL that can you know really drive traffic, engagement, and connection. Our upcoming report, since you almost asked, uh, is going to be about the use of data in the social sector more broadly. A biannual report, which we will be launching at Davos this year. So perhaps I'll see you there.
1: I'll wow, see you in Davos. That's, awesome. That's amazing.
0: That's
4: awesome. <laughs> um, sure. I think it was researcher um, uh, Brené Brown uh, who said, you know, good stories are data with a soul. Uh, when you hear that, what, what, is, what does that mean to you? Like, how do, you, how, do, how do companies... And I think Salesforce does a good job. In other words, when we talk about um, impact and, and business can be greatest uh, platform for change, we, you know, we often make our customers the hearers of our story. It's not a lot of numbers per se, but when there is data, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it stands out, I think. So, so how can companies or marketeers... Put some creating a moment with your soulful data where you're not just educating, but you're also inspiring and you're igniting action, um, especially for someone like me who's a visual learner. You know, a stat alone or a number alone, raw data doesn't doesn't move me as much as when it's, you know, shared in, in, in uh, you know, with a picture or, or, or a graph or, you know, whatever visual aid uh, can you talk about a little bit what, what data with soul the means?
0: That may not be as elevated, but I hope is equally compelling, which is don't get high on your own supply, right? Like there's <laughs> it's a story, you know, every, every data analyst believes you want to see, you know, the backstory, how they got to the number, the regression, the, you know. So I think it's really focusing on what matters to your audience and using data, you know, as Brene Brown said, to, to add soul, to, as in the story to add soul to the data to bolster the data should be playing a supporting role, a leading role in decision-making and a supporting role in storytelling uh, and not the reverse. That
4: is tweetable. Oh God. I got to make a note of that. I'll have to watch.
1: (laughs) You got a tweetable (laughs) moment there.
0: That
4: was
1: awesome. That was
4: awesome.
1: So, but Hey, you know, I mean, one of the things that are really impressive is the fact that um, we've had all this data sitting around and a lot of the times it's the fact that we haven't brought it together into one spot. Right. And, and that, Those data pipelines are the ones that we we actually, there's a a topic that we see going forward is really dynamic scenario generation, right? The ability to continue to create feedback loops for the next best Mm -hmm. action, right? And you see a scene, you see something happen, right? So for example, you realize that, hey, hurricanes just hit over here. What are the things that are gonna happen? How can we actually react? So for example, how do we get water to folks so that they can get that right away? How do we get building materials in the right place? How do we actually drive down the price of fuel or drive down the price of folks that are speculating On those supplies before it happens, so we can actually deliver services to someone more quickly. And how do we track and bring volunteers in one spot? I mean, you're basically creating the nervous system to be able to do that as you get to more focused scenarios. How far away are you from doing that? So,
0: So I I would argue there are wonderful people in the sector doing it already. I have an interview series on our website called Pathways to Impact. Pathways, yep. 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 uh, who was the first data scientist at the UN when they were like, hey, data science. And now you know, he's uh, an expert in frontier tech there. But he talked about how, and I think it's a really important balance he talked about, how the agencies have the expertise. They know how to get the truck through with the grain so it arrives safely. They know how to do So how do you combine the data you have on the need with the local expertise to be successful on the ground? So I, I think in, in some cases we're in action, there's always gonna be an element of sneaker net. I believe, right. in any work. I even believe in the most uh, elevated Boeing jet engine story I hear at Connected Enterprise <laughs> to, uh, to bringing brain to a rural community. I think there's always a little bit of sneaker neck that goes on under the ground, but I think uh, the the ability to combine the local expertise with the centralized data is what gives you the opportunity to automate that, and I do think it is succeeding in some areas.
1: Perry, that's we're gonna going, going to, to miss you see. at CCE, but we'll oh, catch you next Oh, you're
4: not coming. Year. Oh, that's, <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> that.
0: I'm going off to Italy and Africa the next Oh, week. oh We are, so are going to miss
1: you. We are going to miss you. are so bummed. But, uh, but we'll catch you at the next Connected Enterprise. We're here with Perry Hewitt, the Chief Marketing Officer at data.org. You can follow her at Perry Hewitt. She is the star, <laughs> the star of the data world. So, hey, thanks a lot for helping us and have a thanks great Friday. Thank you so Friday.
0: much. Always great, a pleasure.
4: Great seeing you. Thank you. She's a star. She's uh, speaking a star. Ray, you don't know how hard I had, how much of a hard time I had cutting Keith's bio, knowing we only have 20 minutes, because this man <laughs> has done a lot. Okay, a lot. Right, this, is our, this is our cleanup hitter spot where someone comes in and hits a grand slam. Number 63, if, for those of you following the record. Uh, Keith Kroc, <laughs> chairman and co-founder of Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue, former U.S. Under Secretary of State. 2022 Nobel Prize nominee. We've interviewed 910 guests on our show. None of them were Nobel Prize nominees. So uh, what an honor for us. 2022 Nobel Prize nominee, Keith, is a Silicon Valley uh, innovator, philanthropist, public servant, noted for bringing transformational leadership to many sectors, including robotics, engineering, commerce, education, philanthropy, diplomacy. And, and the way people sign. <laughs> Keith is co-founder and currently serves chairman of the Center for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue, a bipartisan technology-focused international policy institute specializing in tech statecraft, combining high-tech expertise and tech sector experience with foreign policy and national security sectors to ensure advanced technologies used to advance freedom. This is why he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Keith served as DocuSign chairman and CEO for 10 years, sign, uh, uh, transforming it from a startup to a global powerhouse. He co-founded Ariba and served chairman and CEO, creating the world's largest B2B e-commerce network, which now transacts, wait, hey, listen to this, $3.7 trillion a year. Who doesn't work on any small projects. Uh, Keith uh, is the 2019 Young National Entrepreneur of the Year, Harvard Business Schools 2019, Business Development of the Year, and youngest ever vice president of General Motors. He's an excellent follow. You can see his interviews with commerce secretary and all these luminaries and his Twitter account at Keith J. Croc, K-R-A-C-H. I, I had to cut it down Ray by like a tenth. Welcome, Keith, to the Shrub TV. <laughs> No,
2: well, voila! I'll tell you. You read it just as my wife wrote it, so I really appreciate that. Steve,
4: uh, well, I, I, your families must be so proud. And I don't think you sleep, and I don't think you take weekends off. I don't understand how huh? one person can achieve so much. But thank you for being here.
2: Well, it's it's <laughs> great to be back with you guys. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. You, you know,
1: know, we're so excited to have you back. And one of the things that you've been really good at is, you know, taking working in different industries and then actually changing it, like taking a frame shift and really saying, hey, we can actually try different things, right? And you ran Ariba and DocuSign. These are two companies that changed the way we did business, right? Not only in the way we looked at commerce and supply chains, uh, but also document management. So what was it like challenging the existing ways of doing business before these companies arrived? And how did you create the culture to actually inspire the change because half the battle saying, well, it's never been done before. Transformational culture.
2: Yeah. It's half the battle, but it's half the fun too. And, and, uh, you know, I guess I've been doing things like that my whole life, just challenging the status quo, you know, and and jumping in water over my head. You know, when you're like a vice president of general motors at the age of 26, you're in water over your head. And, (laughs) and, you know, it's, It's where you really learn the most Uh, and and you definitely learn the most from your uh, mistakes. So uh, it's been it's been a a great adventure. And, you know, after a while, that becomes an adrenaline rush. And maybe that's the first uh, step to becoming a transformational leader. And, you know, I always looked at uh, when there's these technology paradigm shifts, like what we experienced at Ariba. We wrote the first enterprise application for the internet, or when we started DocuSign with cloud computing and, and smart mobile phones, it creates a tremendous opportunity. And, and when you have that par- paradigm shift, all the existing players go back to ground zero. So uh, this, is, this represents a great opportunity. And when, and when you have a rapidly changing market, everybody wants to go with the leader, but leadership is not determined by size. It's determined by momentum. And, uh, you know, the easiest way to be the category king is to create the category.
4: I love that. Uh, yeah, we, we, we've had discussions about category creation. How has your expertise in the private sector, particularly hitting these iconic companies that Ray just mentioned, who were category makers, influenced your approach in, in 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 government and and you've had amazing success and again to be nominated for Nobel Peace Prize it takes uh, incredible uh, character and integrity and uh, devotion to outcomes and in this case uh, you know ensuring that people can live safely around the globe how has that private sector shaped your ability to influence so greatly in the government sector?
2: you know it, uh what I found out is our experience in the private sector is absolutely a superpower in the government. And, and when I got called to run United States uh, Economic Diplomacy, you know, one of the things I, I really wondered is, you know, am I going to be able to make a difference? And are these things that, that, that we use in the private sector and, and the same principles I've used in every company that I've built along the way, will they work in the government sector? And they, and they certainly do. And, you know, one of the f- most fundamental ones was one that uh, Perry was just talking about, and that is the word trust. And, mm-hmm. and actually, what uh, when I got nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, what that was about was the trust doctrine that we wrote and we deployed to uh, uh, combat China's uh, techno-authoritarianism, also for strengthening ties with Taiwan and then also in our human rights work uh, in terms of uh, the genocide that's going on in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. So all of that, um, you know, our whole global economic security strategy was based on this trust doctrine to counter authoritarian regimes like China and Russia's uh, power doctrine of co-option, coercion, Uh, intimidation, uh, concealment, those kind of things.
1: You know, those are it's big true. factors and you've worked in the, I mean, some very interesting scenarios, right? I mean, people often say like government is very, very hard to change, right? And it's, it's pretty hard, especially when you're talking about international diplomacy where, you know, there's been rules and treaties and philosophies that have been put in some for quite some time. Um, but you served in a very non-traditional administration uh, to say the least. And how were you able to change the way the state department was moving with the more entrepreneurial transformational Silicon Valley way of getting stuff done? Um, and 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 what barriers did you face at that point in time?
2: Sure. Well, the mission, uh, my mission was to develop and operationalize a global economic security strategy to drive economic growth, maximize national security, and to combat China's economic aggression. So when you have a mission like that, well, you just fall back on your old instincts. And in my old instincts as a CEO, always step number one was to build a high performance team. So I actually brought in 12 uh, results-oriented execs from Silicon Valley, technologists, entrepreneurs, and combined them with these amazing, amazing career foreign service officers and civil servants. Wow. And yep. these, these are guys that uh, uh, national security is their true north. They speak four to seven languages. They rotate every uh, three years. They've got to take a dangerous assignment. You know, they can make 3X what they're making there uh, in, the, in the private sector, and regardless of all the drama that's going on in domestic politics, they're professional. And yep. so combining this diverse team, and that's one of the other things that I've learned along the way, hmm. is to create a team of different temperaments, talents, and convictions. And that diversity of thought is the catalyst for genius.
4: Wow. I, that's, that's such a superpower and key element of strong leadership is to recognize everyone you meet knows more about something than you do. And if you can actually come together yep. with a sense of humility and gratitude um, and an open mind, yeah. uh, my founder says beginner's mindset, that is just so important. Um, yeah.
0: you. I mean,
4: you
2: have it, Vala. And what was interesting was to see the career foreign service guys just yeah. worship the ground. These Silicon Valley guys walked on and, and, and the, and the Silicon Valley guys worship the ground that these foreign service officers worked on. And that was magic. And then, the, you know, the other thing, of course, that we did is we pulled out the same playbook I used back at General Motors, Ariba, Rasna, DocuSign. Also, when I was the chairman of the board of trustees at Purdue. And the playbook is the vision, the mission, the values, the team rules, the long term goals, the strategy. All boiled down to execution. So you can get everybody into into alignment. And that formula, you know, that formula resonates. Uh, I've learned now that it resonates uh, in the government. And a lot of things that we did that were, uh, for us, common sense in the business world was kind of a unique idea in government. That's also why I'll tell you guys if you ever get a chance uh, to give back to your country, uh, we need folks from the pri- private sector. And that's one of the key things that I really evangelize out there. That's
4: oh, coming. That is that your superpower, connecting the right people with each other uh, and then going after solving big challenges and opportunities that, 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 that we face?
2: Well, you know, I think if you look in the business world or certainly in the world of diplomacy, your most important asset. Are your trusted relationships,
4: yeah, yeah.
2: So your ability to build trust is is key, and you know everything is divided by time. So a, a key <laughs> skill is how fast can you build those trusted relationships? And you know what I've just kind of found in my life is, uh, you know, well, can you do it over a lunch? Can you do it over? Dinner? What I found is if you're vulnerable with somebody and you talk about your fears, your failures, and your flaws because we all have them, yeah. then about 95 percent of the t- time, the other person is going to reciprocate in kind. Yeah. And then that forms a connection. So all that stuff is, is just, you know, it's common sense. It's common sense. It kind of becomes ingrained um, after a while.
1: That's you know, I want to take some time to talk about the Kroc Institute for tech diplomacy. And I think it's really important given where we are today and given the times we're in, right? Um, If you look at the macro forces and, you know, as a futurist in in a futurist firm, it's US versus China, BRICS versus G7. Uh, We're seeing war on the US dollar. Uh, We're seeing, you know, deglobalization, right? Massive forces are, are happening. Some are planned, some are concerted, right? And when you think about what that means for, you know, tech and tech diplomacy, if you think about the way, just basic standards, like on a US. B chord, right? I mean, that, that's one example. Like, what is going to happen? Are we just going to continue to fracture and divide? Or do you see the bonds are still there to actually build that trust that you see that's so important in terms of keeping, you know, the, you know creating a shared experience, creating a global economy. So,
4: And please tell yeah. us about the Kronk Institute, please. Yes. Sure. yes. So uh, the Institute for Tech
2: Diplomacy at Purdue is founded on the premise that technology must advance freedom. You know, technology can be used for good or evil purposes. So when you look at uh, 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 communist China, um, they use that as a surveillance uh, state, uh, and it enables genocide, and they're exporting that dictator out of the box with those surveillance tools all around the world. And if you think of, for example, I call it the great one-way China uh, China firewall, where all the data comes in for their own malign purposes, like uh, their social credit score, their surveillance, their military AI application, but none of the data goes out. And then reciprocally, all their propaganda goes out, but the truth uh, doesn't come in. And now what they're doing is they're extending that great firewall through applications like TikTok, through Alibaba, through Baidu, through Tencent, and certainly by, by uh, Huawei. You know, when, when we were developing that global economic security strategy, the urgent mission uh, was uh, to defeat China's master plan to control 5G. And as you guys know, 5G is more than just a smartphone. It controls utility grids, power systems, sanitation systems, Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles. And it looked like their national champion, their most important company, the backbone for their surveillance state, Huawei, was going to run the table. And this is, was in March of 2020. Both sides of the aisle were hitting the panic button. And um, and previous efforts had failed because, uh, you know, uh, uh, our government folks were going around the table or going around the world banging on the table. These other countries are saying, don't, you know, don't buy Huawei and you know, we came in there, uh, they gave us the authorities, and they, and you know, we said, look, nobody likes to be told what to do. Why don't we just treat these countries and these telcos like a customer? And the customer is always right, and you've got to have a value proposition. And so that's exactly what we did. So, in the course of less than a year, we formed the Clean Network Alliance of Democracies, which uh, represented 60 countries two-thirds of the world's global GDP, 200 telcos, and a list of industry-leading companies. And that is the first uh, defeat of China Inc. by a government-led initiative. And it actually created a model that we applied to clean apps, clean cable that's underwater cable that's really strategic. Uh, Clean cloud now can be applied to clean currency, clean drones, all of that. And with this Uh, model represented uh, is a bridge between a Republican administration and a Democrat administration. That continuity of policy is so important. uh, Especially... Yeah, and- especially
1: given the short-term nature of, of, of our, our politics, right? The other one that was really attractive to me was the rare earth stuff that you're doing, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we have a clean energy policy that basically enriches China, right, without realizing it. And they get to actually then deploy at economies of scale so much cheaper than ours on our backs, right? And, and we're not looking at this properly from an economic point of view. Tell us a little bit more about the rare earths as well.
2: So. Yeah, so if, if you think about... Uh, Let's take the solar industry, you know, polysilicon goes into that. It's not actually so rare, but uh, China has a lock on the solar business. They control about 90 percent of the solar panel business, as well as the polysilicon that, that goes into that. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing where it kind of gets a little scary mm-hmm. and concerned. First of all, industry experts say um, by 2050, 50 to 60 percent of the world's energy will be solar. It's all made in China. And where it's made is in a place called Xinjiang. And that's where they're committing genocide. Why? Two reasons. One is they use slave labor. The, the average labor cost there is about five hundred dollars a month. Try competing with that. But the other big factor, why Xinjiang as well? is that uh, manufacturing these solar panels is very energy intensive. The amount of energy a solar panel puts out in three years is the same amount that you need to manufacture. And it just wow. so happens in a coal-rich region of Xinjiang, that's where the two biggest coal-fired power plants in the world are. So when people are buying Chinese solar panels, uh, what they're buy- I mean, it- these are big, unregulated coal plants. And so they just flooded the market with that because they want to control uh, energy. And if, you know, if there's any lessons we've learned in history, energy security is national security.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a 6.7 gigawatt coal powered plant like never before seen in the world. It's huge. So at that level.
4: I'm listening to Keith and I'm wondering when he's going to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I mean, well, guys, you guys. I, you guys, but, you guys. I, I, no, my final question is like, what's next for you? Like, what do you, I mean, what, what, what you know, what, what, what Herculean, ginormous,
1: uh, you want, you an ambassador, opportunity I
2: mean, like, to make a go like yours? How about that? You know, I want to be a stand up <laughs> comedian. By the way, I tried that once at the improv in New York uh, after business school. I got booed off stage, but I,
4: you know, no. wow! Um, breaking breaking news on Disrupt TV: we you found know, something but, that Keith is not amazing at. Well, by the way, no, I think
2: I'd be good, but I, I just did do it. But um, you know, seriously, uh, you know, my life it, it was really shaped by that government experience. And guys, here's what I learned there. Is that, um, you know, the government, the North Stars, uh, national security and protecting this 200 year experiment that we have Mm -hmm. called democracy here in the United States. We don't claim that it's perfect, but we it it allows us to have our freedoms. And by the way, you it goes against all the laws of nature because the natural order of physics is the bad thing, the dictator and the emperor. And you've got to fight every day for that. So that, you know, I grew up in Ohio, that white picket fence, that dog and 2.5 children, you know, that doesn't come for free. And if it wasn't for the United States, uh, Mm -hmm. 100 countries wouldn't taste freedom. So I'm really committed uh, to advancing uh, freedom through trust, through the adoption of trusted technology, because, uh, you know, what China's doing is a four dimensional game of Economic, military, diplomatic, and cultural chess, and the, at the crossroads is uh, technology. That's the main battleground because they have very little respect for human rights, for the environment, for rule of law, for sovereignty of nations, for uh, property of all kinds. And so, I guess I'm committed to that because I, I'm thinking about my, you know, my five kids and and grandkids and all of that.
4: Thank
1: you. Yeah, for I what know. You do. I- Thank you for what you do to feel that you love your country. And, and just to clarify, right, it's the CCP, China government, not the Chinese people uh, in, that in are putting that in place. That's a
2: really important distinction, Ray, is that when we talk about, uh, you know, these kind of things, we are not talking about the 1.2 billion Chinese people that yep, are not yep. part of the elite Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, I've been going to China since 1981. I'm a lover of Chinese culture, history, the people. Certainly, the food, right? Um, so, and these guys want a taste of freedom.
1: They want it. They want it just as bad as everybody else in the world. I'm I'm Taiwanese, uh, and uh, you know I'm at your service. Let me know where we go next, Keith.
2: Well, by the way, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I, I had a great experience. I uh, I was the highest ranking State Department official to go to Taiwan in 41 yes. years. Yes, uh, yep. they me Taiwan's number one. Sorry, party. I
4: cut that out of your bio, but that's a fact. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not that <laughs> a way. No, no, no. But,
2: but I, I'll tell you what: Taiwan is a linchpin of democracy. Mm-hmm. They're a role model of freedom. And to General Secretary Xi of China, what Taiwan represents is it dispels his myth that the Chinese culture can mm-hmm. uh, live in a democracy. Yeah, uh, and yeah, so it is more, more of a democracy. Threat yeah
1: it's more of a democracy than than some countries and, and when you're looking at the asian tigers taiwan versus singapore those are the two distinct models right Beneficial, you, yeah. know, you know beneficial dic- you know dictatorship or benevolent dictatorship versus you know full democracy and yeah. it's a very interesting model but you're keith perfect. we could talk for hours and we probably should in the next episode
2: uh, you guys are the greatest i really appreciate being back on your program Thank you. i wish you nothing so we're- the
1: best. Thank We're you, here sir. with Keith Krouch, Chairman and Co-Founder Crock Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue, former U.S. Under Secretary of State and 2022 Nobel Peace Prize nominee. It's amazing. We can follow him by Keith J. Kroc, K-R-A-C-H. Thank you so much for being on the show and happy Friday. We'll see you in the green room. Thank happy you, sir. Friday. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> So it's another Friday. It's just a, it's our average Friday. You I don't know guy, about you. Bob. Guy
4: leading strategy at a company, a small company, IBM, to one of the first ever chief digital, to an incredible, remarkable CMO, to a Nobel Prize nominee for this year. Ray, what a privilege for you and I to spend Fridays with just incredible people. Um, could you summarize the last hour for us, please?
1: I can't. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean this is crazy i mean we're talking about everything from like strategy industrial policy where the future of you know automation and quantum is going and and then we're talking about where data has an impact on our lives and then we just pivoted on the fact of you know we need trust in the world to make tech work so that if we want to keep democracy and civilizations the way we want them in an orderly fashion where freedom is you know the shining hope of humanity like, how are you going to put this all together? And somehow we did in three episodes. <laughs> I have
4: no idea. I, I, in an hour. In an hour. You know, this weekend so. I'm going to be listening to all of this because all three guests, had. first of all, they had amazing tweetable content. Like so succinct, so clear, so smart. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing. Okay, next week is episode 297. We're inching our way to our 300 episode. We've already interviewed 910 guests on our show. So we're also inching our way to our 1,000th interview, hopefully in the next few months. Uh, next week, we have Sanjeev so, uh, Saho, Executive Vice President, Chief Digital Officer at Ingram Micro. He's a remarkable person. He's going he's gonna, to you know, uh, really uh, enchant us with his vision of what digital transformation and soulfulness is all about. He's really a poet and an artist, as well as a technologist. We have Joel Bynes, author of The um, Metal Economy, Six Strategies for Transforming Your Business to Thrive into Metacentric Consumer Revolution. Metacentric wow. Consumer Revolution. <laughs> and a surprise guest that we're going to announce hopefully by mid-next week. We're just coordinating some logistics. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for spending an hour. Of, I hope your mind was expanded as wide as mine was in the past hour. Thank you, everyone, for watching.
1: Happy Friday, everybody. Bye.